for the rest of you, I want to say good morning again. It is really always a joy to be with you, uh, to stand before you and to look at God's Word with you. Um, this morning, we took a couple weeks off over the last two weeks, but we're going to return this morning to a series we've been working on through the fall, uh, look, studying questions that Jesus asked. He asked about 200 questions or so in his ministry. And the question this morning that we're going to look at is one that he asked more than any other question in all of his ministry. If you kind of strip out the stories that were repeated uh, in different gospels, it looks like he asked this particular question about 10 times as recorded. Have you not read the scriptures? Have you not read the scriptures? That's the question. And it's, an, it's really interesting every time he asks it to look at who he's directing this question to. And so let me set this scene for you before I read it to you. We are now about three days away from when Jesus goes to the cross. He's in the city of Jerusalem. The triumphal entry has, has already happened. He's come into the city. And remember that when he came into the city, the people proclaimed him as the Messiah. And when they did that, they were saying that this man, Jesus, is an agent of divine authority in some way. He has come to rescue his people. That's what they believed about him. They looked at him with, uh, with, as a man with authority. And then uh, shortly after that, in Mark, you see that Jesus curses a fig tree. He's beginning to exercise this divine authority in, in pretty visible and public ways in the city. He curses a fig tree, and uh, that has symbolic, symbolic significance or really an indictment of the spiritual barrenness of Israel. And so you can see how he is beginning to this conflict that he has with the, the religious leaders of the city are like coming to a head. And of course, that leads to the thing he does next, which now he goes into the temple and begins to cleanse it. He rids it of, uh, of these small business owners that are occupying temple space saying, my father's house will be called the house of prayer for all the nations. And he cleanses it. So what you see over time, since he came into the city, is that more and more the tension between him and the temple authorities in particular is really coming to a head. And Jesus is actually driving a lot of that tension. He's creating it. And that's when they come to him asking him about what authority he is operating with. Let's pick up, this is Matthew chapter 11, verses 27. I'm going to read through chapter 12, verse 12. Hear the word of the Lord. And they came again to Jerusalem. And he, Jesus, was walking in the temple. And chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him, and they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? And Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me. And I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? And they were afraid of the people. 
for they all held that John was really a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. And finally, he sent them to them saying, they they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read the scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest Jesus, but feared the people. For they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him, and they went away. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray. Uh, Father, some of us have frail hearts that need to be encouraged. Uh, Some of us have stubborn hearts that need to be softened. Uh, Some of us have doubting hearts that need to hear truth. Uh, Some of us, Lord, have uh, weak hearts that need to be strengthened. Uh, All of this is too much for one of your people to do alone, but we ask that you would do the work that we need to do in our hearts as we look at this word. Help us to hear what you would have us to hear, And uh, Lord, I pray that you would help me to love these friends well, uh, to speak honestly and candidly and lovingly and gently as you speak to us. And I pray that every word might be in fidelity to you. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So many of you have heard uh, or know the the story of Dunkirk. There was a great movie about that a few years ago. Um, It was a World War II story set summer of... 1940, when about 350,000 British soldiers were pinned uh, on the coast of Dunkirk with about 21 miles of water against their backs, separating them from their homeland. And uh, and so that's a pretty well-known story. Many of you have heard about it. The story I'm about to tell you, I think is all. I think is also fairly well known. But I'm really mad at Christopher Nolan about this because he like left it out of the movie, and I think it was blatant. He, uh, he tells a story, really, that speaks to the biblical literacy of, uh, of the people of England at the time. You see, what happened was, as the German soldiers were beginning to approach, these British soldiers, uh, you know, from what I understand, the whole world was watching this happen. And inexplicably, the, these German soldiers suddenly paused. And some think that they uh, paused to kind of reorganize before their final assault, But when they paused, a British naval commander sent an emergency distress signal back to London, and it said three words, just three words. 
said, but if not. But if not. And those sound like really simple words to us. But it communicated exactly what this naval commander wanted to communicate. See, everybody, most people in England knew exactly what he meant by that. Knew that it was a scriptural reference to the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 3. Daniel was facing a really difficult a really difficult scenario where this pressure, there he was being pressured by a foreign king to either face death, certain death, or to worship this golden image, which is something God had told Daniel never to do. And Daniel said, the Lord can certainly deliver me out of your hands. But if not, but if not, we will not worship this golden image. A writer would later say that those three words formed a more eloquent message than any sermon delivered in St. Paul's Cathedral. And it somehow galvanized these people to send thousands of boats of all kinds of descriptions down to accomplish this rescue. It's an amazing story. And it's amazing to think about how these people heard these few words and knew what he was talking about. I tell you that story because Jesus is also telling a story in this parable that is just chock full of scriptural references. Uh, You'll see references. I'll try and point them all out to you, but I might not be able to get to them all because there are so many. There are references that Jesus makes to Isaiah chapter 5, to Nehemiah chapter 9, to Exodus chapter 2. He even seems to be making references to Genesis chapter 2 and Genesis chapter 3. And, and I'll tell you that every single person that was hearing this story knew exactly what Jesus was talking about because they were incredibly scripturally literate as a people. Listen to this. Jesus asked the question, have you not read the scriptures to a bunch of temple authorities that at one point in their life had them completely memorized, okay? There's so much more behind him asking that question. He's saying, uh, he's saying, you've read the scriptures, but have you really read the scriptures? You've read the scriptures, but do you really understand what they were talking about? Because if they were, we wouldn't be having this conversation. As we look at this parable, what does Jesus do? Well, he tells a story about Israel's story. That's what he does. And he lays out for them descriptions of both Israel's conflict with God and God's kindness given to Israel. That's what we're looking at. Israel's conflict with God and God's kindness given to Israel in this parable. First, let's start with conflict. The, the parable follows the same pattern that most, uh, most great stories have. It begins with a lot of hope and then hope becomes interrupted. In fact, the storyline of the Bible follows that same pattern with creation fall. There's something very similar going on in this parable because in verse one, everything starts with hope. Everything looks right. An owner purchases a piece of land and he builds a vineyard and he puts in this vineyard everything that you would need for the vineyard to flourish. The fence is put there as protection from, uh, from wild animals uh, a wine press is put in there. That's really actually an exhaustive, exhausting, labor-intensive, expensive thing to do where you actually carve out of rock big vats 
and channels through, for the juice to run and to ferment underground. Uh, it's just an incredibly large work. And then, of course, he builds a tower. Now, this tower would have been about 15 to 20 feet tall. It was used for shelter and for storage, but most importantly, you could put a man with a sling up on, on top of that tower to protect, to look out and to protect the, the vineyard from any, uh, from any raiders, okay? So, and then he, uh, he leases it to a bunch of tenants. Now, land lease agreements like this were really common at that time in the Jordan Valley. The owner would get about a third to a half of the produce, and everything looks great, right? I mean, everything looks great. In verse 1, everything looks great. And then verse 2 happens. Hope becomes interrupted. Everything goes off the rails. And what, what, what happened? It says the tenants behaved terribly. It says they beat the servant and they sent him away with nothing. What's the point Jesus is making? He's saying that all this hope that everything began with was interrupted by the behavior of the tenants. And Jesus is saying that the story of the vineyard is also the story of Israel. Now, whether they liked hearing it or not, that's exactly the way everybody would have received the story. How do I know that? Well, one was because a vineyard was, at that time, the national symbol of Israel. Okay? Uh, it, it was actually their national symbol. It, Jesus is in the temple when he's telling the story. We think he's on Solomon's portico, which would have been on the east side of the temple. But in the temple, there was a grapevine etched into the wall surrounding the door to the most holy place. Uh, we have old Maccabean coins that have uh, etchings of grape leaves and bunches of grapes. Okay, It was a part of the national identity of Israel was this idea of being a vineyard. And listen, this isn't something that they thought up themselves, but it was actually an identity that God gave to them. If you look back in Isaiah chapter 5, you will see, Isaiah 5, 1 through 5, you will see uh, a story of God building a vineyard and putting his people in it that looks very similar to this one. It mentions a fence. It mentions a pit for a wine press. It mentions a tower. I mean, Jesus is drawing obvious parallels. Like there's direct line of sight between this and the parallel and the parable that Jesus is telling. And it says that God put his people in there, but not just his people. It actually calls them his beloved people. And what went wrong? Well, it looks from looking at the parable that the tenants, what they did was they loved what the owner gave them. They loved the benefits of being in this vineyard. But they didn't love the owner. And they didn't want to be beholden to the owner. They didn't want to live under the authority of the owner. Remember the conversation that led to Jesus telling this parable. Authority, they were questioning Jesus' authority. That authority is what lies at the heart of this parable. And Jesus is saying to them that you want what God gives, but you don't want God. And you don't want God because you actually want to be God. 
That's what he's saying. Listen, remember how the serpent tempted Adam and Eve in the beginning. This is not the first time there's a story in the Bible about Jesus making a garden that is all set up for the people in the garden to flourish, where he gives them everything they need, and then they behave badly. How did the serpent tempt Adam and Eve? He said, what did he say? He said, you will become like God. When I was a teenager, feels like forever ago. When I was a teenager, I think I was 17, 18 years old, and uh, uh, I was living in my parents' house. I was working during the summer, and uh, it looked like for a week in the middle of the summer, my family was going on a trip, and I just wanted to stay home and work and save some money. And so that's that, like, I don't know why we thought this was okay, but that's what we did. And so my family was going off on this trip. I was going to stay home and live in my parents' house and drive my dad's car, and I was going to work while they were away. And you can imagine, I was kind of excited about that. Like, think, think about it. My, I might have been 17, might have been 18, but I was pretty excited about that. I thought about the freedom. I thought about enjoying all the stuff that was there. I could come and go as I pleased, and uh, nobody was going to tell me what to do. I mean, I, I, it, it was, I was really excited. And I think that for as excited as I was about that, my dad was actually pretty nervous, okay? And the reason I know that he was pretty nervous was because he sat me down before he left and he had a conversation with me, okay? We call this a shared awareness, if you might call it that. And he said this, he said, this house is not your house, this is my house. Y'all ever had this conversation with your kids if you have kids? Trent says that he has had that conversation with me. This house is not your house. This is my house. And he said, don't get that confused. This car is not your car. You are free to use it. You are free to enjoy it. But it's my car. Don't get confused about that. Now, why do you think he said that? I'll tell you, it's not just because I was 17 years old. And it's not just because I was a boy. It's really because I'm me. And dad knew my heart. And dad knew that I would be just as prone to getting confused about that as anybody else would be. And how much trouble I could get in if I forget those things. You know, I don't really think that there's much difference between the heart, the indictment leveled at the heart of these leaders in Israel as there is in my own. I mean, we are always tempted, aren't we? We desire autonomy. We desire independence. We desire a life that serves us well. We desire these things. It's true. Listen, let me ask you this. When you think about your the contents of your life. You think about your stuff and your time. You think about your money. You think about the relationships that you have. When you think about your work, when you think about these things, how do you think about them? I mean, do do you think about them as something to maintain an increase? Are they things that cause anxiety for you? Are Are they sources of fear, like you might one day lose them? Like, how do you think about the contents of your life? 
One of the things that Jesus is calling us to do is to understand that God is very generous to us in profound ways, in ways beyond we really understand. And he gives us things to enjoy. He does. But he's also calling us to steward them in a way that honors the one that gave them to us. Sometimes I think we, we get this, um, we put two things in conflict that I don't think are in conflict in the Bible. Sometimes I think we think that God gives us good things only for the enjoyment of those around us. And sometimes I think we think that God gives us good things only for our enjoyment. But actually, I think the biblical proposition is that, it's, that God gives us both. That God gives us things to enjoy, like a vineyard. God gives us things to enjoy, but it's also to be stewarded for the good of the people around us. Let me take this a step further. A vineyard, it was seen then, just as it is now, as a gift to the community that it sits in. Okay, it is, a be- it is normally a beautiful place, and it produces something beautiful that gathers people up. Like, there's a reason God calls Israel his vineyard as a gift to the nations. It's supposed to produce something that brings joy to the people around them. And so let me ask you, like, th- that is a question for you to think about, or maybe sit and talk with your friends about it, or go back to community group and talk about it, but ask them, like, how do you think about your life? Is it is something to be enjoyed? Is it something to be stewarded for the joy of others? Like, how do you think about these things? That's something to wrestle with deeply. Here's another point I want to make, and I would be just doing an injustice. It feels like a little bit of a sidebar, but I'd be doing an injustice if I didn't say this. Who's under the microscope in this parable? It's not the vineyard itself. It's who? It's the tenants of the vineyard. Who is Jesus talking to and confronting with this parable? The temple leaders. He is aiming this hard story at the temple, at the religious leaders of the day. And so so this just comes as a sobering warning to those of us who are called to be leaders in the church in any way, I think. And we, need, we just need to hear it. It's like Jesus is sitting us down and he is saying to us, listen, this church, this is not your church. You enjoy this church and lead this church as he sees it. But these, this is my church, is what he's saying. These are God's people. These people are not your people. These are my people. And I bought them at the cost of my own blood. Serve them as I have served them. Love them as I have loved them. Exercise authority as I have exercised authority. Well, it leads to a question, doesn't it? How actually does God exercise his authority? I think it's profound, actually, for as tragic as this story is, to look at how God exercises his authority through a kind of persistent ongoing kindness. And listen, this is, when you look at this story, this is a kindness that I think stretches the limits of our credulity. It's like over and over and over again, 
God continues to give these owners or these uh, tenants of the vineyard another chance. Look at how this goes. Verse three, they beat him. They sent him away empty-handed, okay? That's verse three. That, that alone is shameful enough, right? Okay, it's profound disrespect for the owner of the vineyard. It's profound disrespect to the servant that, that was sent. The second servant in verse four, it says, they struck him on the head. They treated him shamefully. Jesus is making a point. You, you need to see this. There's an escalation of violence with each, each servant that gets sent. And then the third servant was then, was then killed. And then Jesus says this, and so with many others, some they beat, some they killed. He's describing this like seemingly endless repetition of the tenants that are treating this servant terribly. And yet the owner of the vineyard over and over and over again continues to give them another chance. Every point of their resistance aimed at the owner of this vineyard is met somehow with God's persistence and continuing to give them another chance and send them another, and send them another servant, a chance to make, his, make it right. Jesus is making a point about how great God's love is and how it is, he continues to extend it at great, great cost to himself and to the servants that he sends it. Now, listen, this is a hard parable to read. It very much is a parable of judgment. Uh, it, it's uh, it's it, it's uh, it, it's kind of it's cringy in so many different ways. Okay, but and 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 you know, notice that the leaders of this temp, the people that he's talking to in verse twelve, they rightly perceive that that Jesus is speaking this parable against them. Okay, you can you can almost see them pull their robes tighter around them as he's telling this story because he knows he's talking about them. But I'll tell you, this isn't the first time they've heard a story like this. Okay, conflicts between hostile farmers and landowners was very, very common. Hostile, it was common throughout the Jordan Valley at that time. And so what Jesus is doing is drawing a real parallel between one of the more tragic stories of their day and the way Israel had treated God's prophets time and again. Listen, that is the story of the Bible, is God continuing to send another person to speak the truth of God to the people and win their hearts, and then them rebuffing them over and over and over again. God sends these people, and repeatedly we read that it was very hard work, and it often did not end well for them. Okay, Elijah was driven into the wilderness by the monarchy, uh, uh, tradition holds that Isaiah was killed, Zephaniah, no, sorry, Zechariah was stoned. Listen, the distance between the historical accounts and Jesus' parable gets smaller and smaller as the story goes on. But he, what is he trying to teach us? He is, try, he is drawing, he is being very clear about the, about the rebellion of Israel and the ongoing generations spanning rebellion of God's people's hearts. But he is also over and over and over again talking about this inexhaustible love of God for his people that he continues to send people in order to, in order to win their hearts back to himself. He is teaching you, and you need to remember this. He is teaching you, and he is teaching me how God continues to bear with his people, even in our rebellion. 
Listen, when you think about yourself, I asked you to think about your life, but now I want to ask you to think about yourself. Do you feel lovable? Do you feel like you're worthy of love? Most of our life can be spent convincing ourselves that we are worthy of God's love or worthy of the love of the people around us. Trying to fight to earn that love. And what Jesus is saying is that his people never deserve God's love. But God was still sending it to them anyway. Listen, when I think about this, kindness is too light of a word to describe what God is doing in this passage. The, the, the biblical word for that is loving kindness. It's loving kindness is a word that describes steadfast love that never runs out, that can't be matched, that is given so freely and generously that you can't lose it. That's what Jesus is describing in this passage. It is a hard passage. But he's also describing one of the most beautiful things that we need to hear about who God is and his character. Let me ask you, how would you have responded to this? Imagine you're the landowner. I know some of you own properties. You rent them out. I've heard some of your stories, okay? Some are great and some are difficult, right? How would you have responded to this if you were the landowner? Martin Luther, um, that guy can be a character at times, but he has this good quote uh, talking about this passage. He said, if I were God and the world had treated me as it treated him, I would have kicked the wretched thing to pieces a long time ago. That's what he said. And and I actually, you know, from what I know about Martin Luther, I think he was being literal when he said that, right? The parable says that the owners still refused to turn their back on them, and eventually he sent them his son. There's no doubt that Jesus is talking about himself in this passage. Notice the language, his beloved son. That's language that harkens back to when Jesus was baptized. The father pronounced his belovedness over his baptism. Uh, His coming and putting himself in the hands of these wicked tenants. Listen, this is the most extreme self-sacrificing example of God's love that eventually I will send my son and the son goes. And listen, even in this scene, Jesus standing before them now in the face of this continued stubbornness was yet another attempt that Jesus was making to appeal to these temple authorities in love. Like even, even what he's doing and telling this hard story, Jesus is making an appeal to them to stop. It's like he's saying, it's not too late. It is not too late. That alone is a demonstration of love. It's been a few weeks since I've gotten the quote Spurgeon for you. I'm going to give you another one. This is what he says. He says, if you reject him, Jesus, he answers you with his tears. If you wound him, he bleeds out cleansing. If you kill him, he dies to redeem And if you bury him, he rises again to bring resurrection. Jesus is love made manifest. This is the picture of God's loving kindness given to his people. And if you belong to Jesus in faith, this is a picture of God's loving kindness that belongs to you, that he's given to you.
I was reading the article uh, the other day, and I'm going to wrap up with this. I was reading an article the other day that um, it was, now look, I'm not a literary nut. I'm not a wonk. I don't, it's not part of my education. I do love to read, but sometimes I get lost in these debates. But there was this article that was written that was analyzing a lot of Shakespeare's plays and trying to make the argument that some of these plays we consider tragedies are actually comedies and some of these uh, uh, stories that we think are comedies are actually tragedies. And comedy, that's not like a ha-ha movie. Like a, like a comedy is a story that that ends well. And a tragedy is a story that ends badly. And let me ask you this question. When you read this story, is this a tragedy? Do you see tragedy? Or do you see a story that ends well? That's the question. In one sense, it really is a tragedy. And we can't sugarcoat what you see in verse 9. He says that this continued wickedness earns destruction. That's a, this is a parable of judgment. He's talking about judgment. But listen, only Jesus can somehow do this. Only Jesus can take a parable of judgment and include good news in it. This story, that is, the judgment of the wicked tenants is not actually the end of the story. It's not the end of the story. Because what does he do? He says that he will then give the vineyard to others. He will give the vineyard to others. I don't know about you, but that surprised me when I read that. That he gives the vineyard to Like I would be done. But God's patience even continues. And that he preserves the vineyard and then gives it away to others. And then he says this, he, he says, have you not read the scriptures and quotes the psalm that we read earlier in the service, Psalm 118. And he's saying what? What does he say? He says, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and it was marvelous in our eyes that, that the people of God would see this uh, rejected stone become a cornerstone and celebrate it as something marvelous. What is he talking about there? What is he talking about? He's saying the people have learned to celebrate a rejected stone that then becomes exalted in the building of God's new kingdom around Jesus himself. That it ends in a party. That the, 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 where this story goes is the exaltation of Jesus. They are about to kill Jesus. They're going to kill him and they're going to hang him outside the city. And in his rejection will become his exaltation where he will rise again. I was having the conversation about tragedies and comedies with Matt and with Michael. And listen, if you're ever wondering what we talk about during the week, like that might give you an insight. But Michael said something really helpful to me. She said, listen, the clearest way to know if it's a comedy is if there's a wedding at the end. And and the clearest way to know if it's a tragedy is if there's a funeral. Have you read the scriptures? Do you know where this story is going? 
with God's people united to Jesus in a bond that will never break, celebrating together. And you know what we will call that celebration? The wedding supper of the Lamb who was slain for the sins of the world. And if you look to Jesus in faith, the deep divide that exists between God and man becomes reconciled in Jesus alone. And you will be at that party. You will be there. That's where the story is going. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would help us to to trust that these things are true. That we would hear this story and that it would deepen our love for you. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.